Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Good morning. So glad you guys are here. Uh, Our text this morning comes from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among, from, among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. May God bless the reading of his holy word. 500 years before Paul wrote this letter, Colossae was a large city on a major trade route in the Lycus River Valley in what is today Western Turkey. It attracted merchants uh, from all over the known world. There were Phrygians and and Greeks, Persians and Syrians, Jews and Romans. And every group inhabiting Colossae brought their own religious traditions and their own gods. By the time of Jesus, Colossae had fallen on on hard times, replaced by Laodicea uh, as the major commercial center in the region. So scholars disagree a little bit about the specific concerns that caused Paul to write this letter to to the Colossians. But from what I can tell, the main problem was his worry that Christianity would be watered down by the other religious traditions in the city. In Colossae, animists worshipped nature, uh, Gnostics taught against the evils of, of matter and flesh, Jews insisted Christians must become Jews, and a dozen other religions all had their view of God. And Paul knew that anything that, that was mixed in with Christ would tend to dilute the preeminence of Christ. It's interesting how people throughout history uh, have come up with so many different and, and contradictory descriptions of, of God. There are, there are a million religions out there. And history shows us that on the natural, we tend to create gods in our own image. That's what the gods of Rome and Greece were. They they were sort of this crazy collection of selfish, fatuous, mercurial human uh, gods who who interacted with human beings in in sort of these weird haphazard ways. In in other words, they looked a lot like the Greeks and the Romans. Hinduism has also uh, depicted their gods in a a lot of interesting and and strange ways. For most Hindus, though, you generally choose a god or, or a set of gods to follow. Or you can just practice the way of karma, and, and you need not believe in any God at all. In Hinduism, God is, is optional. 
Allah, the, the, the God of Islam, weighs your good deeds against your bad and, and decides whether you're good enough. Every religion, though, tells us that to get in with God, you have to be a good person, however that religion defines good. For the, for the Vikings, good was being a fearless warrior. For the, for the Muslim, it means keeping the five pillars. For, for the Hindu, it's generally the way of works or, or karma. There are quite a few religions where you don't have to believe in God at all. We've already mentioned Hinduism, but add to that Buddhism, Jainism, Taoism, Confucianism, uh, progressivism, scientism, and all the other isms out there that, that tell you if you just see things their way or, or improve yourself or force others to improve themselves, then you'll find meaning and fulfillment. And so when it comes to religions that try to explain God and creation and the meaning of life, there's just a ton of them, and they all tend to contradict one another. What about you? What, what do you think of when you think of, of God? How do you picture God? If you believe in God, then isn't it worth your time to consider what he might look like? And if you don't believe in God, then don't you think you ought to make sure that you know the God you don't believe in? The thing about Christianity is that it's very different than any other religion in the history of the world. In Christianity, you don't earn your way to God. It's not a set of rules that you strive to follow. You don't reach up to God. Christianity, in fact, isn't really a religion at all in the historical sense of what religions are like. It's not a religion, it's, it's a relationship. And if everything depends on that relationship, then you need to know who it is you're in relationship with. And if you want to reject the relationship, you need to know what the relationship is that you're rejecting. A.W. Tozer said that the identity of God is the gravest question any man can deal with. That, that if you could get a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think of God, you could predict with certainty the, the relative happiness and contentment and spiritual destiny of that man. I think Tozer is probably right, but if the gravest question is, how do you view God? I have to think probably the second most important question is, is how do you believe God views you? How do you think God pictures you? What do you think God sees when he looks at you right down to the core of your being? What do you think God sees? To the first, first question, what does Paul tell us God looks like here in verse 15. Paul tells us it's not just difficult to see God, it, it's impossible. It, it's, it's right here in verse 15. Paul says God is invisible. It's not just that God would be tough to, to find in a rousing game of hide and seek. He, he would be tough to find. He'd be impossible to find because he's invisible. Uh, over and over the Bible tells us no one has seen God. Deuteronomy 4.12, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son. Timothy 6.16, whom no man has seen or can see. John 6.46, no one has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. But the Bible also says you don't need to see God to know God. Why? Because God has revealed himself. One way God reveals himself is through his creation. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of the, 
uh, uh, the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what, is, what, he has, been, what has been made so that people are without excuse. So we can see God in what he's made, but you say, wait a second, all these other religions see the same mountains, they see the same sky, they, they see the same Grand Canyon, and they all come up with different pictures, contradictory pictures of God. Fair enough. What about this? We have the words of God himself that reveal to us who he is and what he's like. Through, through the prophets and, and poets, he's written them down and given them to us. God is spoken to hundreds of people through thousands of years from Genesis to Revelation. He tells Jeremiah, write in a book all the words I've spoken to you, Jeremiah 32. And God spoke all these words, Exodus 21. For the word of the Lord is right and true, he's faithful in all he does, Psalm 33, 4. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, 2 Timothy 3, 16. God's revelation of who he is and what he's done and why he's done it is all there in Scripture. And here's the thing, it's free. You can download it to your smartphone. But it doesn't matter how smart your phone is if you don't get it. So we can know God, but we don't know God. How come? It's here in verse 21. It says we are alienated from God. We're, we're not in relationship with him because we are his enemies. Can you really know someone you're not in relationship with? You're not on speaking terms with? Someone you're enemies with? We aren't good listeners to the proclamation of creation. We can see what's been made from invisible things. We, we see the result of invisible things all around us. Mercy and grace, compassion and friendship, they're invisible. Love is invisible, but all of creation comes to exist because of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Malice, envy, greed, they're invisible. So is hate. But invisibility hasn't stopped hate from disfiguring God's creation. And that disfigurement makes it hard for us to see God. Worse, we, we naturally reject his revelation about himself in Scripture. Even Israel, God's chosen people who had the Scriptures, studied the Scriptures, memorized the Scriptures, they got it wrong. So the Bible says none of us naturally know God. And as we try to describe him on, on, in our own terms, by our own lights, we, we typically end up describing more about ourselves than we do about God. So how are we supposed to, to know God if we can't see him and if, and if we're naturally disposed to get him wrong? It's here in verse 15. Who should we look at if we, if we want to know God according to verse 15? Jesus, right? Verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3 says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You know, it's funny that religions have created this image of God, they all seem to 
claim that they know God. They don't talk much about Jesus. In Islam, he's a prophet. In Buddhism, he's a good example. But all the religions throughout history claim that they have a, a correct picture of God, but they don't, they don't talk about Jesus. Verse 15 says that's exactly the wrong way to look at this. Verse 16 turns that whole idea upside down. It says you can't know God. It's impossible. He's invisible. But you can know Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says we can't know God unless we know him. In John 8, 19, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. How do you feel about that? That seems a little narrow, doesn't it? No one can come to the Father except through Jesus? No one can know the Father except by knowing Jesus? Is that narrow? Well, it's only as narrow as Jesus. How narrow is Jesus? Do you think of Jesus as a wonderful teacher whose sayings end up hanging on your grandmother's bedroom wall? Is that who Jesus is? Is he, is he, a, is he a good man, a, a moral teacher, a prophet? If that's what you think, then, then verse 16 is going to blow your mind because, because it, it goes cosmic. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In him all things were created. What's all things mean? Well, go back to before the creation of anything and what do you find? Jesus. Before the Big Bang, what do you find? You find Jesus. You find the Christ. And, and, and if you know what Christ means, Christ means anointed one. So when you see Jesus, you ought to see two other persons. The Father who anoints and the Holy Spirit in whom he's anointed. Evolutionary biologists make much of the fact that humans and chimpanzees share 99% of the same genes. But here's the thing. We share 90% of the same DNA with frogs. In fact, bananas have about 60% of the same DNA as humans. But rather than inferring that, that bananas and humans have the same ancestor, maybe we should consider we have the same architect. This is Jesus' universe. All things are made by Christ, through Christ. Is it any wonder that they reflect his personality and character? You know, kids are famous for asking, why questions? When, when my daughter was four years old, it was a, an endless sea of why questions. Why does the dog have four legs? Why does she stick her tongue out when she breathes? Why does her breath smell that way? <laughs> why, 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 why? It's bedtime, that's why. <laughs> but you know at the end of all the why questions, you eventually arrive, arrive at Jesus. This, this universe is personally molded and made by the sun, and it reflects his glory. Sure, we've, we've sinned, we've, twist, we've twisted it, we've damaged his creation, we've disfigured his image, but he's nevertheless stamped his glory onto creation. And it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just say all things were created through him. It says all things were created for him. You want to know the existential meaning of the universe and everything in it? including you, that's it. Are you part of all things? You are, and it says, 
It says all things were created through him and all things were created for him. You were created for Christ. You want to know who you are? The possession of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, verse 18, it says, he is the firstborn. That doesn't mean Jesus was born. It means it's a reference to Jewish law and custom. It means he's the heir. Jesus inherits it all. Well, what do you give the son who has everything? God the Father gives God the Son the entire cosmos. How's that for a love gift? You know, you see these these images that come back from outer space and and they show these fantastic colorful nebulae and these beautiful ringed planets and stars spilled across the galaxy and and you think, what beauty? That beauty is the overflowing love shared by the Father and the Son. By the Father, through the Son, and the overflowing love of the Holy Spirit, their love is so immense when they express it, the universe leaps into existence. Is Christ narrow? He's creator, he's heir. And in verse 17, it says he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's look at science a second again. People say it's the tension of matter and antimatter that holds things together, or, or they say it's the collision of atoms, or, or they say it's the force of gravity. But those things are only descriptions. Those things are only describe how Jesus holds everything together. It's Christ. It's all Christ. It's only Christ. The very ultimate, most fundamental reality of the universe is Christ. So, you know, Bobby talked this morning about Christ is the head of the church. How wild is it that that he's the head of the body of the church? He, He says... All this other stuff, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, it's stunning. The Milky Way, the, the Pikes Peak, the, the dazzling emerald waters of the South Pacific, they're nice. But what do I find most beautiful? What do I love more than anything else? The church. They're my body. That's what I love. They're what I'm closest to. And in verse 18, it says, he's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. What's that mean? He's the firstborn among the dead. Well, firstborn means he's the heir, but being firstborn among the dead, what's that? It means he's suffered death. He's he's gone down into the grave. He's confronted the ultimate enemy of all mankind, the thing every human fears, and he's conquered it. It's it's Psalm 23. He's walked through the valley of the shadow, and and he's come out the other side into, into feasting joy. And if you're connected to him by faith, he carries you through. And the feasting cup of overflowing love and joy, eternal life that belongs to Christ, fills your cup to overflowing too. How narrow is Christ? We're not done. Paul keeps going, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How amazing is this? All of of creation made by him and for him, holding together in him, taking its meaning from him, and all the fullness of God dwelling in him. Is Christ narrow? The, The real question is how narrow is your understanding of Christ? Is he a baby, meek and mild, laying in a manger, 
Is he a moral teacher? Is he a good prophet? Is he some unrelatable, unreachable king sitting on a distant throne? Or is he ultimate reality? Because that's what the Bible says. It's not Allah or Mithra or Odin or Krishna or Osiris or Kali. It's not wokeism or climatism or capitalism or socialism or any otherism. It's not Mother Nature just grinding along according to the, to the scientific laws of gravity and inertia and thermodynamics. Those laws are real, but they're only tools in the hands of the one who, who owns the entire universe. Do you know God? Do you know what he looks like? He looks like Jesus. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He was before all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the heir of all things, and all things hold together in him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of God. God looks like Jesus. But what does Jesus look like? It's here in verse 20. He reconciles to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Theologians have this thing called the godness of God. What's the godness of God? It's the, it, it sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? it? It's not. It's a bleeding sacrifice with his arms nailed open to the world, pleading, Father, forgive them. If God is truly the, the giver of all life, the, the source of all life, then, then we see the godness of God most purely when he see him pouring out his life for, for his enemies. Jesus isn't like any other God in human history. You know, the Vikings, when they invaded England, were appalled. They, they couldn't believe people would worship a nailed God. That's what they called him, the nailed God. And that's the thing, the gods of human invention, are, they're strong and tough, and, and often they're all-seeing, but seldom are they all-knowing. They're often mercurial and changeable, but they're almost never self-sacrificing. Our text today begins with the sun as the image of the invisible God who made all things, holds all things together. Where does it end? The giver of all life, giving up his own life. That's the climax, Paul says. That's the essence. That's the ultimate example. That's the godness of God. Jesus bleeding for his enemies. Is that a God you can believe in? You know, when Mark Holmes and, and Brett and the volunteers from the church who work the county fair booth every year are out there, the people they talk with very often don't understand Christianity. They think it's about some grandfather in the sky who, who makes arbitrary decisions about which people he's going to spoil and, and which he's going to torment. Or it's about power, some, some big guy calling down winners and losers from heaven, and, and you better bow. It's God the powerful demanding obedience. I think that's what the world mostly thinks, but that's not it. And it's up to Mark and Brett and those from the church working the booth to leave a, a different picture. It's a, it's a picture of a bleeding victim with arms open, praying, Father, forgive them. If that's the picture they leave, if that's the God people can see, then they have hope. You know, the Bible uses a lot of metaphors to describe Jesus. Shepherd, brother, bridegroom, bread of life, fountain of life, light, lamb, lion, rock. 
That's just a few of the hundreds of metaphors. The dying, bleeding, suffering, sacrifice, that's not a metaphor. It's the real thing. It's Christ. It's the Son, the image of the invisible God, the heir of the cosmos, through whom and for whom it all exists. The cross is no metaphor. It's the, it's the harsh, ugly reality of our sin. It's the beautiful, loving, merciful, gracious kindness of God who loves his children and has gone to hell and back for them. We're not talking about a kind of God you have to coax into paying attention. He, he doesn't weigh your good against your bad. He, he doesn't grade on a curve, so as long as you're better than the guy uh, sitting behind you out there today, you're in. We're, we're talking about a God who has gone to hell and back for you, who has bled his heart out for you, who has loved you more than you can imagine ever being worth loving. Is that your picture of God? That's who the Bible says he is. What about the other question we, we started with? What does God think of you? How does he see you when he looks at you? Maybe that makes you squirm a little bit. Or, or maybe you think, you're not so bad. At least you're here in church. That's, that's a lot better than 80% of the other people down at the city dock who don't go to church. Maybe you feel pretty good about yourself. But then tomorrow morning comes and, and uh, you cuss out the other drivers in traffic. You know, George Carlin used to say, anybody driving slower than you is an idiot, and anybody driving faster is a maniac. So, 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 you, so you cuss out the idiots and the maniacs, and, and then you realize, that didn't help. Then on Tuesday, you, you drop a couple of bucks in the, in the beggar's cup on the corner, and, and God is well pleased with you. But then on Monday, you're rushing to a meeting, you kick the beggar, the cup goes flying, the money gets blown away. It was an accident, but it keeps happening. And so we teeter-totter up and down, trying to find the good we can do to earn the favor of Christ. But if we think that way, then we've, we've missed the point. We, we've made the good news bad news because we can't do it. It can't be about me. My relationship with, with God can't depend on me. I can't live up to his standard. I can't even live up to my own. But if it's up to me, then, then when I'm doing well, I feel pretty good about myself and, and superior to everyone else. In fact, I can look down on others. When I'm not doing so well, I feel down on myself. I feel resentful towards others. It's just this kind of seesaw up and down. You know, so often you ask somebody if they're a Christian, and they say, I'm trying. Paul is saying here, you don't try. In verse 21 and 22, he says, there is no trying. You're either in the room or you're outside the room. You're in God's mansion or you're outside God's mansion. And in verse 22, he tells us what it's like to be outside the mansion. It says, once you were alienated, that's outside the mansion. You're in the dark, you're in the cold. And it gets worse because Paul goes on, he says, if you're outside of Christ, you're alienated, enemies, evil, guilty on all counts. That's a tough verdict. Alienated from God, his enemy, and evil in your thoughts, desires, and actions. How can that be? Didn't we just decide you have some good days and you're not as bad as most of the people out there? But if all things were made through him and for him, then it's his world. It's, it's all for him. 
And if you're not for Christ, then you're aligned against Christ. If the entire universe is oriented toward Jesus, but you're not oriented toward Jesus, then you're riding against the grain and you're going to get some splinters. You, you, you need a good pair of tweezers to get those out. If ultimate reality is Christ, then not to orient yourself to Christ is to orient yourself against reality, against truth, the spit in the eye of creation. That's what it means to be outside the mansion. You don't know Jesus, and worse, you're aligned against Jesus. But that doesn't answer the question, what does Jesus feel about you? That's your reality, but it doesn't answer the question, how does Jesus see you? You know what he thinks of you. He thinks you're worth dying for. He totally thinks you're worth dying for. Whether or not you're for him, he is completely, absolutely, unalterably for you. In fact, he is so for you, he has gone to hell and back for you. And there he stands, arms out, outraised, ready to embrace you and give you the gift of your heart. The thing that you've longed for most in the entire world, real love, real acceptance, real forgiveness. You can't do anything to earn a gift. It's a gift. It's free. All you can do is accept it. And the moment you do so, the moment you put your faith in Christ, verse 22 tells you what it's like to be inside the mansion. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, rather than being outside the mansion, alienated, an enemy, evil, you get three new verdicts. Holy, without blemish, free from accusation. That's in the mansion. That's about as in the mansion as you're ever going to be. Now you're holy. You're, you're set apart as his child. You're, you're welcomed into the mansion because his home has now become your home. You're without blemish. There's no more stains, no more guilt, no more shame. You know, so often we can't believe we did that thing, we said that thing, we, we felt that thing, we feel dirty inside, no more. In Christ, you are without blemish, you are spotless, you are a bright and shining light, pure in his sight. And you are free from accusation. Is that hard for you to believe? We live in a society where everyone is quick to blame and, and accuse and condemn everyone else. It's great for lawyers, but it, but it leaves the rest of us feeling a little vulnerable, maybe. I, I think one of the reasons people are so quick to condemn others is because, because they feel they deserve condemnation themselves. Do you sometimes feel that if others really knew you, they could, if they could look inside you and see your thoughts, they'd, they'd make fun of you, they'd accuse you, they, they'd condemn you? What would it be like to be unblameable? What, what would it be like to to be absolutely blameless before the only judge who matters. By way of application, let me just ask, do you feel that kind of freedom, that kind of love? If not, then flee to Christ. If you're not a believer, I beg you, forget about the striving to be good enough. Forget about hoping God grades on a curve and, and you'll score above the cutoff. Could you love a God who, even though you're his enemy, he, he puts your life before his own? He, he so wants to win your heart. He, he suffers and dies for you. He goes to hell and back for you. Is that a God you can believe in?
Forget the man-made gods of other religions. What about Christ? Are you ready to accept the gift he's holding out to you? If so, then even now, just call out in your hearts and say, Jesus, count me in. If that's who you are, if that's what you're like, then, then include me. Fill me. Take control of my life. Guide me. And if you're a Christian, then, then I would have you ask yourself, what's the message you're taking out to the world about Christ? Is he just some big softy who wants to give his followers the desires of their heart? Because if that's it, you might win some converts, but they won't last. As soon as the storm comes, they'll, they'll be resentful. They'll, they'll feel duped. They'll run away from God. That's not the message. Or is it that God sits on a throne and, and you had better bow? If that's it, then the people listening will have missed the good news. Remember, we, we're all naturally alienated from God. We, we can't imagine a loving God. People look at the suffering and the, and the pain, and they see the world that sin has twisted and torn, and they can't imagine a loving God. We are enemies of God. Instead, take a message out to the world that really is good news. God has come down to pursue them, win their hearts, suffer with them, die for them, reconcile them to him, to make them holy without blemish and free from accusation. And that they need fear no more. He's walked the valley of the shadow. He's ready to, to, to carry them through. He's vanquished death. We're going to come to the table, and as we do, I hope you'll think, how, think about how far Christ went went to win your heart. I, I've tried to make much of the cross today because Paul makes much of the cross. He says that's where we see the deity of Christ most clearly. That's where we see his all-consuming love for us most starkly. Last week, David preached about Martin Luther's struggles to return Christ's church to, to a proper understanding of the faith. Martin Luther, Luther said that when people speak of God, they, uh, they generally choose one of two paths. They, he, he called them the theology of glory and the other the theology of the cross. Glory imagines a God according to what we expect as human beings. Easy living, always victory, never pain. The other centers on what we naturally see as the most foolish thing our hearts can imagine. A bleeding victim on a cross. Luther, Luther said the way of glory looks like the path to heaven, but it leads to hell. The way of the cross looks hellish, but it will take you right to the gates of paradise. Do you want to see God? Look to the cross. There he dashes our natural instincts to believe we can earn our way. What's glory? It's the cross. What are the things of God? They're the cross. How should we picture God? Turn to Jesus on the cross. There you see ultimate reality. The bleeding sufferer, arms outstretched, praying, Father, forgive them. That's the glory. That's the character. That's the mission of God. When we're tempted to see God as something other than the suffering Savior, we have to turn back to Jesus and him crucified. We have to look again and survey the wonderful cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your immeasurable love and for the sacrifice of your son through whom and forth whom 
all things were made and by whom all things are held together. God in heaven, give us a vision of your love that buckles our knees and causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, blessed Son, Holy Spirit, impart to us the power of the cross so that we might have peace with you, recognizing you as our God and ourselves as your people forever. Amen. If you're a believer here today, uh, and if you understand this is Christ's universe, and you exist through him and for him, then you are welcome at this table. This is not BRCC's table. This is, this is the table of the Lord where we unite with Jesus. If you are not a believer or don't know what I'm talking about, then let this meal pass. See Brett or me or one of the elders after. We'd love to talk with you about claiming the gift of peace that Christ offers. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after he given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can get your uh, packets ready. We're going to pray and then we'll take them together. Father, you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Thank you for your steadfast mercy and, and goodness, goodness to us. Thank you for the preeminence of your son, your love for him, and through his death on a cross, your saving grace. May we be mindful of your sacrifice and for his sacrifice. Accept the gift and be welcomed into your home. Take and eat. You can prepare for the juice. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal Son of God, sharing glory with the Father and the Spirit before time and creation. All things that have been made are made by you. They are made for you. You are the heir. You have defeated death and sin and Satan. And because of your overflowing love, you have made us joint heirs with you. You are all supreme over the universe. You are all sufficient to recognize Reconcile us to God out of your great love. What, we, what can we do but embrace you as our Savior and as our Lord and accept your gracious gift, saying yes and amen. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you are the anointing oil of love and gladness poured out between Father and Son that overflows into our lives. Fill us, Spirit, and have your way with us, making us over into the people of Christ that he would have us be. We ask this in the name of Jesus for our joy and for the glory of God. Amen. Would you stand with me today for the benediction? I'm going to take the benediction today out of a little later chapter of Colossians, Colossians 3.
verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And God's people said, Amen. Go forth in the name and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.